But we start with the extreme weather, the rainfall, uh, the flooding, especially keeping a close eye on the situation in Abbotsford and Sumas Prairie. Here is Abbotsford Mayor Henry Braun speaking to our own Simi Sarah this morning. It's always been the third one that concerned me the most because we can only take so much. So it would appear, I mean, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that we can handle what's coming across the border. Well, what's been coming across the border and it will come in larger volumes uh, once it crosses Sumas uh, City uh, just to the south of us. But uh, the next one, uh, yeah, we'll see. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fingers crossed. All right, Abbotsford Mayor Henry Braun there speaking this morning. Let's check in now with Tyler Hamilton, meteorologist at the Weather Network. Tyler, thanks for coming on. Hey, good morning, Mike. Tyler, I appreciate you taking the time. You've been doing an awesome job covering these storms. Uh, what is the current status right now? Is, is, the current, is the current weather event over and we're uh, bracing for the next one? Is that, is that what the situation right now? We're in a holding pattern, essentially, where a lot of British Columbia watersheds were just hanging on by a thread here. We're not going to get too much of a reprieve through Monday. Showers, that time's heavy, continuing. And then I'm looking at real-time satellite data, and you see the new potent atmospheric river. It's able to draw up moisture deep from Southeast Asia, and that moves into the region overnight into Tuesday. Silver linings few and far between here, but there's some good news for the Nooksack River Basin. This one's going to be pushed a little bit further north, so... Good news a little bit for the Abbotsford region, but bad news for North Vancouver and parts of the northern sections of the Fraser Valley dealing with an additional 100 millimeters of rain through Wednesday. Yikes. Okay, this next one that's coming then, that sounds like this is, this is the big one that's coming now. Would you say, uh, that, in, how would you describe it? This one has just a different moisture source associated with it. There's, there's pros and cons with each of these atmospheric rivers. I think the rain shadow will be featured a little bit more for Victoria, Duncan, and East Vancouver Island. So I'm not a concern with, with those regions seeing significant flooding. It's western Vancouver Island and up to sea to sky. All of these watersheds are really filled up to the brink. And, of course, the flooding through the interior. That's been the unusual aspect with these atmospheric rivers. They've somehow lofted that moisture across the coastal mountain range, we saw over 50 millimeters of rain fall through some of the interior weather stations. So that is really pushing a lot of this flooding to the brink. All right, speaking of Tyler Hamilton, meteorologist at the Weather Network, let's have a listen to Mike Farnworth here, the Minister of Public Safety, uh, talking about more extreme weather on the way. Here he is. We're in the middle of one of the most intense series of storms that we have seen along coastal BC. This is historic weather intensified by climate change. Once again, it's time to be ready, to be prepared for heavy rains that could worsen existing flooding or create new flooding and increase risk to our highways. Listen to your local governments and authorities, especially if evacuation alerts or evacuation orders come. Okay, Tyler, when does this rain, expect, you expect this rain to begin? So the heaviest rain, again, it really doesn't stop raining. We're going to see those showers yeah. off and on all day. That's the unfortunate news. We don't get a dry day like we saw in between the last atmospheric river series. So overnight through Tuesday morning, Vancouverites and anyone around the south coast is waking up to light to moderate rainfall. It's going to be heavy the further north you go, and it's a long-duration event. So you, you wake up Wednesday morning, you're still dealing with pockets of heavy rain ongoing through Wednesday. This nightmare finally ends 
Thursday as we get an air mass exchange. Essentially, we're going to be getting a cooler northerly flow that's going to drop the freezing levels and really dry out the atmosphere over the south coast on Thursday. But uh, it is very much touch and go the next two or three days across British Columbia. Right. Speaking of Tyler Hamilton, meteorologist at the, at the Weather Network. So when we take a look at some of the, the spots that are particularly vulnerable, like we look first to Abbotsford, and just listening to the Abbotsford mayor there this morning, he sounded quite relieved that he had got through this latest sort of drenching. What, what is your analysis of, of the situation there right now? Tentatively, cautiously optimistic, I think, is a good way to phrase this. The Nooksack River peaked at around a moderate flood, flood stage across northern sections of Washington State. It'll remain elevated, though, the next 24 hours. Freezing levels still high, so we're going to be dealing with some snow melt ongoing, and we'll just have to see how this next system impacts that basin. I'm a little bit more concerned up the Sea to Sky and across North Vancouver for this next rainfall event. It's long duration. And just the amount of rain we've seen, uh, I don't use this word unprecedented lightly, but Abbotsford is going to finish the month recording a half a meter of rainfall, Mike. That's 500 millimeters. Wow, you mentioned that snow melt. How does that play into this? So a simplistic recipe for flooding, you look at how heavy the precipitation rate is over the region, how hard it's raining outside. And then you want to look at the temperatures aloft across the coastal mountain range. Mount Baker is particularly important for the Nooksack River Basin because as those temperatures spike, you get an additional, it's called snow water equivalent. That meltwater rushes down a lot of these tributaries, rivers, and creeks. And, you know, you want a snowpack up there because a lot of that snow can act like a sponge that can sometimes mitigate flooding, absorbing, and slowing that runoff. Okay, last question for you, Tyler. So we're getting ready for one more big soak here. Uh, what comes after that? Is it possible to predict uh, what's coming in the days and weeks after this? This next one. Yeah, as we transition into early December, uh, we're still going to be dealing with a misbehaving uh, jet stream at times. It doesn't want to settle down completely. We're not going to lock into a complete dry period. Uh, high confidence we won't be looking at quite a wet month as we've seen, obviously, in November. A lot of more cool intrusions and we can start to rebuild a lot of that snowpack that's been lost across portions of the North Shore Mountains. All right, keeping a close eye on it. Tyler, thanks for coming on this morning. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much. All right, welcome back to the show for Canada's National Junior Women's Field Hockey Team. This was supposed to be the trip and the tournament of a lifetime, the Junior World Cup in South Africa. But then the Omicron variant of the virus hit, Canada has now imposed travel bans on flights from South Africa and neighboring countries. Canada's field hockey team is stuck in South Africa right now. Let's check in with one of the parents here of a couple of the players on our national team, Sue Goddard. And I'm Sue, I'm very pleased you could join us. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for talking to me. Appreciate it. Okay, so Sue, you have not one, but you've got two daughters on the team, right? Yeah, Nora and Arden. Okay, tell me about them. Like this is this is Canada's national national junior team, correct? Yeah, yeah, I'm right. happy to tell you about them. And I think um, their situation is really similar to the other girls in the team. They've all been working towards this for years. They were all incredibly excited to be chosen a couple months ago to be on the team. 
They managed to get here by winning the Pan Am Games in Chile in the summer, wow. which Canada has never won before. And um, they fundraised for this because it's all self-funded, got themselves down there um, with their amazing coaches and manager. And then about three days after they got down there, we heard about the variant and all the borders shut down. The games were canceled and there they are. Oh, my goodness. What a disappointment for them, man. For you as a parent, that's got to be worrisome as well. So when did you first hear, when did you first, first hear about this? Um, I think it was Friday when we heard that the yeah. games were canceled. And then it started to become more apparent over the weekend that there wasn't a clear way for the girls to get home. I have to say, like, first of all, they're incredibly supportive. They're, ma- they're with some amazing coaches. Field Hockey Canada has been working with the Government of Canada through Sport Canada and Global Affairs. They're also involved um, and our traveling partners to try to get the girls back. So, like, at the highest level of government, people are trying to get the girls home. But borders are closed. Flights are cancelled. And, uh, yeah, there's no... We don't have a clear idea of how or when. So I think, as parents, we're really anxious about um, when the girls are going to get home and how but we are not concerned about their safety. They're in a little bubble uh, at this university where they're training. They're getting excellent care from everyone around them, and the university has been so accommodating. So physically, they're very safe, but I think uh, we're very stressed, and they initially were just devastated, but I'm really proud of them. They've moved through that to realizing that that's cancelled, but this could happen again down the road. It could be rescheduled, and now they're just, back into training two times a day, two or three times a day. So we're really right. proud of them for their resilience. Well, they haven't stopped training, even though they're even though the tournament's been canceled. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. well, you might as well keep training. I mean, why not, right? Well, uh, what else do you have to do besides that and some schoolwork, right? You're right. I mean, it's just a waiting game right now. I'm speaking to Sue Goddard. She is the mom of two of Canada's athletes on the National Junior Women's Field Hockey Team. They're stuck in South Africa right now. Arden and Nora are her daughters. So when you've spoken to them, uh, how are they bearing up? So honestly, the first couple days, not great. They were all quite, my girls were really quite devastated. I think lots of other girls were as well. But they stayed together. They've been talking a lot. And I think they've moved past that to recognizing that it's an unusual circumstance, um, that they know they're safe and people are trying to get them home. And now it's an opportunity for the team to kind of congeal and get ready for months from now when maybe this might be rescheduled and this is a training opportunity that not other teams might have. And the girls are from all across Canada, so they don't get to train together that often. So this is, you know, they're trying to make the best of a bad situation. So I'd say everyone's kind of coming out of the funk they were in for the last couple of days. And they've been getting so much reassurance from the people around them and from the, actually even the, the federal government, as I mentioned, was really helpful. The Minister of Sport actually reached out to the team and spoke to them on the weekend and mm. reassured them that they're a priority and they're trying to get them home. So I think they've moved through the initial devastation to trying to make the best of it. Okay, uh, Tim, do we have Susan Arends? I'm yeah, here, Su- yes. Su- Susan, Hi. Susan, thank you for coming on. Susan Arends is the CEO of Field Hockey Canada uh, joining us as well. As well, Susan, what is the status of the situation right now and trying to get this team and the team officials home here now? Yeah, the, the status is, as Sue outlined there, the, the team themselves are, are obviously well and, and healthy and uh, very safe in a, in a bubble training and, and continuing on. Um, and back home, we're working hard with the Government of Canada to, to bring them back. 
this is a, a very fluid situation, as, as you all know, and borders closed very quickly on Friday. And it, it has taken time over the weekend to to find out when exactly the flight will be this, this week. Um, we we haven't got an update yet, but we are chasing that this morning as well. And I know um, everyone was working on the weekend over this. And as Sue said, we had, uh, we had the Minister of Sports reach out on, on Saturday to the team and speak to the team in South Africa, which was obviously greatly appreciated and uh, comforting for them to know that the highest level of government is, is working on this. Right. And, and what is the plan? Have they laid out any kind of plan to bring the team home at this point? They haven't articulated that yet. Uh, That's, we expect that today or tomorrow latest. Yeah. I mean, with the flight ban into Canada, what options are available to you? There, there's two, two routes that we, we understand can happen. There's closed commercial flights that they will be able to. Our, our team are all lined up in the system so when that route becomes a possibility we can link in there or the charter route and getting a charter to repatriate the the team back to canada that yeah. route. right when were they originally scheduled to come home well the tournament itself was due to start uh, at the end of this week and yeah. they were there until until the middle of the month yeah. Wow, what a disappointment for everyone involved there. And speaking to Sue Goddard, she's the mom of two members of Canada's National Junior Women's Field Hockey Team. Susan Arenz is the CEO of Field Hockey Canada, uh, trying to get the team back home from South Africa. Uh, Sue, for, for a mom, I mean, you must, I, I, under, I take your point that, you know, your girls are safe, they're being taken care of. Is everyone over there uh, vac- fully vaccinated? Is, is, that, uh, is that required oh. to be part of this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, one hundred percent. Everyone's been vaccinated. So yeah, yeah, that yeah that, that's is. good. That that is that is a good thing. And uh, what what is your chief concern right now? Like, are you, you know you're not worried about the safety of your kids, but you want to you want to get them home? Yeah, you know what? You nailed it. I'm just really anxious to get them back into Canada and know when they're coming home. And just uh, I don't know. I, I kind of lost it a couple times yesterday. Like I said, I know they're safe and yeah. everything's going to be okay, but just the not knowing, I think as parents, is the only stress we're all feeling right now. And we know everyone's doing everything they can, but it's, they're, very, they're very, very, very far away from all of us. Right? Yes, yes. No, I'm going to be troublesome for sure. Susan Arends, last question for you. So what is next here now? What's the next step in this process? The next step is, as Sue says, you know, timeline and the process is is key to this and the anxiety increases without knowing the timeline around it. So that's that's what we're seeking to confirm with the government and um, to expedite this process, given that the team, obviously, it's our junior national team and they're in South Africa representing Canada and uh, the government, of course, understands that and... uh, we know they're working hard, but we're seeking the timeline now to so we can add some certainty around this and, and get them home as soon as possible. Okay, well, I certainly hope that happens for you in the days ahead. Thank you to both of you for coming on to talk about it today. I appreciate it. Thanks Thank for you. Having us.
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the flooding impacts on local farms now. We've had dozens of farms that have been flooded out. Thousands of animals have been relocated. Let's check in now with Gary Bars. Uh, Gary is a dairy farmer. Gary, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Hey, Gary, where is your farm located? So we're pretty much right at the edge of the lake bottom. We're on Interprovincial Highway in Abbotsford, uh, right by the number three road exit, about a mile off the exit. Yeah, you, and you had to get your cows out of there, right? We did, yeah, two weeks ago uh, tomorrow, uh, back on a Tuesday, the Tuesday. Yeah. How did that go? Uh, it was kind of a nightmare. Um, yeah. I guess <laughs> it was weird. We uh, When we took ours out, um, it was early, like it was totally dry still on the farm, and I had a few of my buddies even making fun of me. Uh, but huh. I guess in hindsight, yeah, it was the right call. So, Yeah, has is, is your, is your place been been flooded at all? Yeah, it was completely flooded. I oh, mean, there man. was yeah, yeah. There's four feet of water in the houses and the and the barns. And, wow. Yeah. Have you been able to get back there and check it out? Yeah, we have. So we we've been able to come back through uh, through Chilliwack to get there. And like as of yesterday, the barn was out of water at this point. The water's dropped about four feet. Uh, one of the houses uh, uh, from a couple that run the farm, their uh, their house is still underwater, but the main house and uh, and the barns are now well. I mean, obviously disgusting and dirty and wet, but but out of water. Here, I can't imagine what that's like that you and your neighbors are going through here. Can you put that into words? Like, what's what's that like to, to see this devastation to your place? Yeah, for me, I mean, I'm probably I'm probably too pragmatic, and I kind of look at it like anything that money and time can fix is, you know, at the end of the day, it's not human life that was lost, and, you know, yeah. so it's not as tough for me that way. But um, a lot of farmers have, have just been crushed. They've either had to put animals down, lost animals, um, uh, just moving, moving animals is tra- traumatic, right? Especially in the heat of the moment. And yeah, I mean, we got to clean up all the houses and clean up the barns and, and there's a big, uh, I guess it probably hasn't totally hit home yet. Cause we haven't even been able to get in there and get to work cleaning up our farm. And we're still dealing with other farms. Like we moved cattle again last night further West wow. where they're worried about flooding. So I'm kind of in that mode still of like just emergency mode, not really clean up yet, but yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's a pretty daunting task. So you mean like you? So you moved your cows out of your place two weeks ago originally, which obviously was a smart move. And now you've got to move them, some of them again. Is that correct? Yeah. So basically, like, there's two sections of the Sumas Flats that are being affected here. There's basically the west side, which was hit last Monday, like awfully hard. Then the dikes broke, and all that water poured into the, the basically the lake bottom, which is where we are where no water's supposed to go, which is why they shut down Highway 1 last night, because they, you know, they're, they're trying their darndest to keep water off our end. And, um, and basically, like last night, there was guys that are closer to Sumas, border crossing, and they had already got hammered once last Monday for two days. They were stuck not milking their cows. So we went and pulled them out as a precaution last night, uh, one of the farms in particular, just to make sure that, uh, that he wouldn't get stuck there again. Oh. Speaking of Gary Bars, he's a dairy farmer who's been flooded out of his place. And uh, Gary, what's for your friends and your colleagues in the farming community there? Are you guys all trying to sort of help each other out? I mean, that's what farmers do at times like this, right? Yeah, it's funny. I went and uh, brought coffees to some buddies of mine that have been relocated as well. They farm about a mile from my farm. And uh, we basically had an emotional get together this morning, but we were just saying like, boy, if you want something done, you call a group of farmers. And I mean, it's humbling for us. Those of us that are being helped, there's guys that I'd hardly even know. There's people from 
just the general community that have been just wanting to help in any way, bringing my family meals, other family meals. And yeah, you nailed it. Like the, the mm-hmm. farming community does stick together and it, it's just been a, that part has been a really, really special experience. I, there's no words to really accurately describe how humbling and awesome mm-hmm. it is, but it's been amazing. Right. And I know when you, when you have cows that have to be moved like that, I mean, cows have got to be, they've got to be milked, right? And we, we've heard stories about milk just being dumped because there was really nowhere for it to go. Like, have, have you had to dump, dump any milk? We have. And there again, I mean, they're everybody, all the powers that be are trying to mitigate that. But I mean, when you have road closures like we have in our province right now, there's just a lot of things that suck that are happening. And that's one of them. I mean, that you know, like I say, everybody that's in control of the situation is doing their utmost to get every bit of milk picked up. But um, in this time, there's definitely been some milk being dumped. That's for sure. Yeah. And are there still, is there still cattle stranded that people are trying to rescue? No, there's not. And actually okay. that's kind of why we did the move last night because yeah. once you're, you know, a lot of these farms are higher up, like, you know, the barns are built higher, the houses are built a bit higher. But once the roads have three, four feet of water on it, I mean, we did some of those rescues two weeks ago, you know, where we had tractors with trailers going through four feet of water, but that's super dangerous and it's not that easy to load cows in three feet of water. So yeah, yeah at this point, there's no cattle that are, are stranded and not being able to be milked to my knowledge anyways. Yeah. And when do you think you might be able to, or, or your neighbors might be able to get, to get back home, to move their, to move their cattle back to their farms I mean, is this, a, is this a process of weeks? What have they told you, or what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I would, I mean, we've, we're kind of under the standing, understanding that it's weeks. I mean, the water, like when there's no rain and, and the floodgates are open at Barrowtown, the water drains amazingly quick. You know, it goes down about six inches a day, and we're talking a massive swath of water. Um, you know, thousands of acres are covered. But wow. basically, I, I would say, I would hope, like if, I mean, now we're back to, water not going down because of the the rain and the, that we're having so yeah i'm hoping that in the next two weeks or so we can get back there and at least start cleaning up and hopefully get our cows back home last question for you gary like what kind of help do you guys need or do you, has the response the emergency response been adequate or do you guys need more help right now i think that probably the long term we need to make sure that you know government's putting money in the right areas like diking right, right? Yeah. things that are not you know, not a big sexy announcement for politicians, but are super practical. And as far as the actual help goes, I feel like there are so many amazing nonprofits. I could list them all, but there's a pile of them. And I feel like community is more than willing to help. I've had hundreds of offers to help clean up my farm. So yeah, I, I, I feel like um, most people are very caring and, and willing to step up. And I know in our community, we're just grateful for all the fellow help from farmers and, and people that in the community. It's been amazing. So Hey, Gary, I hope there are better days ahead for you. Thanks a lot for coming on today. appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Uh, all right, welcome back to the show. Quick programming note for you. The CKNW Kids Fund Pledge Day is tomorrow. Tomorrow is also Giving Tuesday, and it's a special day to give back to the community. I've been involved with the Pledge Fund, uh, the CKNW Kids Fund Pledge Day, for a long time, many years, and... The tradition usually had been an in-person gathering at a hotel downtown, and we would bring in a lot of local choirs from local schools, and it was just an awesome day of people uh, gathering together in person. Now, this year with the pandemic, once again, uh, we'll not be gathering in person this year, but 
CKNW still raising money all day long tomorrow for the CKNW Kids Fund. And we'll have inspiring stories from some of the very special kids that are supported by your donations tomorrow. It will be a great show, and I hope you can join me here tomorrow. And I certainly hope you can make a difference by making a pledge. And you can find the full details at cknwkidsfund.com. I think this year, more than ever, more important uh, to remember those who are less fortunate than you. So remember to give what you can, cknwkidsfund.com. And the pledge day is tomorrow. So a special show on tomorrow's show with the pledge fund, uh, the CKNW Kids Fund pledge day tomorrow. All right. Let's welcome back to the show now a uh, repeat guest on the program, Aman Singh. Aman is the NDP MLA for Richmond, Queensboro. I follow him on Twitter, and the other day on Twitter he wrote, as the legislative session ends and we continue to work within our communities, I wanted to share some news with my constituents. This summer I was diagnosed with colon cancer. It is treatable. I had no symptoms. It was identified as part of a regular checkup. And Amon joins me now to talk about this. Hi, Amon. Thanks for coming on today. Morning, Mike. Thank you very much for having me on. Amon, I'm pleased to have you here. I'm very sorry to hear about your, your cancer diagnosis. And you. you've been uh, very courageous and open in, in speaking about this journey you're on now. And you mentioned that like, you were not feeling sick. You weren't fe- experiencing any symptoms. This was caught in what, like a screening? Yeah, no, not at all. And you know, it, uh, 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 I, the colon screening people are incredible, uh, uh, and they sent out the letter. And um, I delayed by a few weeks because I hadn't had my uh, uh, second uh, shot yet. My, you know, so. Uh, but you know, as soon as I got my second shot, the week after, I went in for a regular blood test, which I do every year. And so it's called a fit test, a stool test. No yes. symptoms, no stomach ache, nothing, and. Lo and behold, that's what we have. So really important for people to get out there and, you know, to, to regularly go for their six-month or one-year tests and not to delay on that, you know. It, it just, you never know. And, you know, I mean, I have a small, you know, young family. I've got a two-year-old, um, Lenny and my wife, Katrina, who, you know, so um, the impact is not just yourself. It's on all those loved ones around you. So I just uh, uh, really urge people um, that you never know. Hopefully it, it always comes out positive and nothing is wrong with you, but go out and get tested. It doesn't cost you anything. Yeah, no, I think that the uh, the BC Cancer Agency does a great job on, on the, the screening program that they have, especially for people over the age of 50 who may be in that zone where they're, they're vulnerable, especially to colon cancer. And if you get one of those letters in the mail, and I actually got one recently too, and don't put it off, do that test. It's very simple. Go check it out. And uh, that's how they caught, they caught yours. So I, I guess the good news here, Amon, is that they, they caught it early. Yeah, it's, it's, it's early enough. It's treatable. It's, uh, uh, so, uh, you know, but they want to make sure that they, they uh, make sure it doesn't spread anywhere else. And they gave me sort of a choice of what sort of treatment I wanted. And I thought, you know, I might as well, you go through this once, I might as well um, listen to them and, and uh, do sort of do the whole regime. Um, and, you know, they, uh, very, very positive out- outcomes. I, I think colon cancer is one of the most common cancers out there, which is why we have the screening. And uh, because there's so much familiarity with it, like breast cancer, the, the results are quite positive. Um, so I'm pretty, I'm, I'm feeling pretty positive. You know, I'll, I will come through this. I've been through, as you know, other adverse circumstances before, and, and uh, this is just another one to face up to. Right. And uh, 
the treatment you're going through now includes uh, you're getting chemo. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Chemo is chemo is as I said before. Chemo sucks. It's really uh, it it uh, uh, you know my my mom passed away from cancer a few years ago and uh, you know she she uh, uh, she underwent chemo and I, I remember being around her and taking care of her and you know knowing she would express her pain and she'd express the symptoms and you don't really understand them until you go through it yourself it is so bizarre like the taste in your mouth the general sense of malaise that you have the nausea that just never goes away um you know the, the those sort of things I, I i you know you can empathize with someone who has it but until you've had it it, it really is it's a different thing so um, but you know what? It, uh, uh, the people at BC Cancer Agency are phenomenal. The nurses, the technicians, the staff, um, like you go in there and, and they make it, they inform you, they tell you exactly what they're doing. They ask you before they do anything and they make you feel so comfortable that I, I have no complaints. I, am, I'm, I feel completely comfortable and I feel like I'm taken care of incredibly well there. Speaking to NDP MLA Amon Singh about his recently diagnosed cancer and the the treatment he's receiving, bravely speaking out on it. You know, probably everyone listening or or a large majority, I would say, Amon, in their family have experienced cancer in some way or another. Like you mentioned, you lost your mom. I lost my dad to uh, lung cancer. Um, So, I mean, everyone has can seen this has seen this up close. I've had friends who have had radiation treatment for cancer. We know Premier John Horgan is receiving radiation for his throat cancer right now. Uh, chemo, man, that's that's another that's another level, though, right? I mean, that really knocks you it out. Is. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, it is. I think it, it's because it's a, a, a it's in such a um, unique place uh, in in your body, uh, and I think they, it, it's so close to your pancreas, your lungs, and it's there. Are, there is a danger of it spreading. Um, so they, they do try and, uh, uh, unless they've caught it at an a incredibly early stage or if it's just a polyp, they do try and sort of uh, uh, be overcautious, I think, with the treatment, which, you know, which I think, which makes sense from their perspective. Because, I mean, I think my oncologist is basically saying, you know, we want to we wanna go through this once and then we just want to check you every few years and not have to see you again. Um, and I'm, I'm good with that. I know the... Uh you know, when people are getting radiation treatment, it's usually a daily a daily treatment. How, how frequently do you get the chemo? So it's a uh, it's it's a three week cycle. Um, it's a three week cycle where I uh, go in for an IV treatment, and that's really the the major one on the on the first day, and that sort of takes that really takes a toll. And then there's, there's two weeks of pills, uh, chemo pills, and then you get a one week break. Um, so you start feeling good, you know, uh, uh, just about two or three days before you go into it again, and then you start all over again. <laughs> Oh man, that is, that is tough. Speaking to Amon Singh, NDP MLA. Um, yeah, tough. You mentioned you've got a young family, you got a wife, you got young kids. What is? Can you talk a little bit about what that's like? I mean, you know, to face up with something like this. I mean, this is tough, and you're being yeah, really it, strong and courageous. But I think maybe even tougher on family members in a way. I think it is because you know when you're going through something, you kind of have a have some control over it, whereas whereas they sort of have no sense of control and. I mean, my first thought when I got diagnosed was like, I have a two-year-old. I can't, you know, honestly, I can't die. I need to be here for her for, for, for you know, for a long time. So that, that's yeah. the first thought that went through my mind, right? And then, you know, I've got, uh, but like the, the, I can't imagine the kind of stress that Katrina, my wife, is going through at this point. Um, I can see it, but I'm, I'm sure the anxiety and stress is there, that, that the level of stress is there. But, um, 
you know they're 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 both pretty strong and and I, I think they're they're incredibly supportive and uh you know we make decisions together as a family I mean, Katrina, we we've discussed our treatment options and and going forward even coming out um in public uh, it, it was a discussion that we had so i'm really fortunate to have 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 that support around me and i i thought it was really important to talk about this because especially with colon cancer it's there's just so much stigma around colon cancer cuz cuz it's you know just the the what we associate the colon and and you know excrement and all of those things with and you know one of the things that'll happen is there's like a there's surgery. like a stigma like a stigma attached to it in a way right exactly exactly yeah. you know one of the things that'll happen is i'll have a stoma bag so I'll, I'll i won't be able to poop anymore it'll be coming out of my bag and i you know i want to make sure that people understand that this is just a normal part of life and that yeah. it you know it, it it's temporary it'll go away um but these are the kind of things that people are you know embarrassed about and i think it's really important to talk about them and and, yeah. and, and let people know that there's there's you know tons of people out there that have gone through the same thing and if you're suffering and you're going through this you know there's there's support out there for you there's even within the bc cancer agency there's incredible uh, peer support groups they have counseling sessions so you know reach out if you are feeling afraid or if you are feeling uh, stigmatized reach out to those reach out to those support networks and yeah. and yeah and reach out that- to me Welcome back to the show. My guest is Aman Singh, NDP, MLA, Richmond, Queensboro. We're talking about his recently diagnosed colon cancer. It's treatable, caught early. He's undergoing treatment for it, including uh, chemotherapy. And you heard about his uh, talking about his journey there, uh, bravely speaking out on it. And the message is get tested. Don't don't put something like this off, even especially if you get one of those screening letters in the mail. You know, to do the uh, do the fit test for colon cancer, don't put it off. Check it out, and and that's how Amon's cancer was caught early through a screening. Amon, uh, I'm amazed at your courage. I, I tip my hat to you. Uh, another thing that you've been very open about in your life, and this might even be tougher to talk about than than cancer, and that was your your work with Al- Alcoholics Anonymous and your journey there for alcoholism you took your i believe you took your last drink like it's over 10 years ago now right was it 2010 it is yeah my sobriety day is august 10th 2010 so almost nice. just over 11 years yeah it's uh yeah that's but, a, but for fortune yep that's awesome um alcoholics anonymous this is another one where you know we talked earlier about how everybody listening and probably had you know in some way or another cancer has touched touched their family or touched their lives I mean, alcoholism is another one that I've seen up close in my own family. Um, let's, let's, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, w- w- tell me about... Um, Absolutely. Yeah, sure. So how did, how did that journey begin for you, especially getting into Alcoholics Anonymous? You know, it, it, uh, it, it, it's something that can creep up on you. You know, I was, uh, as you know, my, my previous life, I was a lawyer. You know, uh, uh, lawyers, uh, you know, we, we celebrate a lot sometimes and we drink a <laughs> lot. And just over, over, over time, you know, and we socialize a lot and... Uh, it, it just over time it caught up to me and and at, at some point or other I couldn't put it down right I had no control of it it, it had control of me and it, it took me to some pretty pretty deep dark places you know the that proverbial valley of the shadow of death I, I've been there and you know where I couldn't even recognize myself I couldn't get up without a drink I was drinking a bottle and a half two bottles every single day um, oh. To the point, yeah, to the point where I gave myself cirrhosis, right? I, I you know, that that's another thing. That, um, and even when I, even you know, even in the hospital, when I when I was told that, I still came out and drank. You know, it was, it's a it's a disease where you drink against your will, 
And the biggest thing with alcoholism or drug addiction is it's a disease that's not recognized by society as a disease. So when you get cancer or, or something else, people will come out of the woodworks to, you know, compliment you or, or give their sympathy to you. It doesn't happen with stig- the stigma around addiction is still so massive. Um, when it really is, it's not, you know, it's, it's, uh, and even at that point, I thought it was a moral feeling on my own part. I thought something was wrong with me, that there was an ethical moral feeling. It wasn't until I got into Alcoholics Anonymous that it was explained to me that I had a disease, I had a mental disease, and I had no control over this, and that I needed help. And um, the strength that I got from AA is actually, that, I mean, one of the reasons I'm speaking out today on this is because of all of the strength and, and lessons that I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can't say, I can't say enough about what a gift that is um, sitting and, you know, from, from my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous where I was sitting there shaking in the basement of a church, uh, you know, from, from withdrawals, um, I, I walked out with one thing and that was hope. Cause I saw people that had two days so- sober, you know, one week sober people that had 20 years sobriety. And I walked out of there with hope that, okay, they've been able to do it. It can be done. And I think that's one of the things that I carry with me in pretty much everything that I do is that, that, you know, you have to really um, sort of uh, clamp onto the hope and you have to present hope to other people because that's what, that's what gets us by. And you have to share. And that's a real gift of Alcoholics Anonymous for me is, is that it, it made me share my story. And, you know, um, uh, someone else shared their story and I, I, I latched onto them. They became my sponsor and that's how I recovered. And I shared my story and I've had many sponsees who've, who've you know, who've gone through the same journey as well. And I, I think that's a, uh, yeah, I can't, again, I, I owe my life to Alcoholics Anonymous. I always will. I still go to meetings to this yeah, day right. because I, I, I have to. I, I, have a, I have a friend of mine who went through a very similar journey with AA. And as he explained it to me, you know, you never stop. You never, you never don't become an alcoholic. Like he considered himself to still be alcoholic, even though he hadn't oh. had a drink in a long time. And he still goes to the meetings. We just got a minute and a half left here. I'm on. No problem. Yeah. yeah, me too. I mean, I, I still, when I get into a meeting, I still, you know, I go and I, I announce myself, right? My name is Amin. I'm an alcoholic. That's the first thing I do. Yeah. Funny story. Uh, right after I got sober, uh, I walked into a courtroom and, you know, in a courtroom, you announce yourself. And I ended up announcing myself as an alcoholic in front of the judge. That was quite <laughs> amazing. <laughs> but it becomes so much a part of you. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, you've been incredibly uh, brave in speaking out about about that journey with Alcoholics Anonymous, and now with your cancer diagnosis. Um, I, I imagine that your journey with AA has maybe helped prepare you for this next battle in your life. Would you say? Thirty it, it seconds. Has. It has. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, and you know, there's, there's. I just with thirty seconds, I just want to appeal to people out there who have who have that stigma, who have addiction issues, you know, reach out to people because the help is out there. If you don't reach out, you won't get the help. Put your hand out there. The help is out there. And you will come out the other side an incredible person. It'll, you, you'll recognize yourself again. and you, You'll begin to love yourself again. Um, yeah, okay. Please reach out. 